You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Mark, I always like asking this first. Take it in whatever direction you'd like, but when you think back to your childhood, your interests, uh, influences, what are some of the things that stand out to you? Oh, my goodness. Um, My parents, you know, just telling me to go for whatever I could dream of, you know, having me, getting me excited about learning and reading, um, being excited about sports, um, being really good at sports until about the seventh grade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, just my friends, just growing up in Pittsburgh, just all the things that come together, I mean, you know, to make me who I am today. Was your sport a choice from like an athletic standpoint, basketball, or did you play a lot of sports? Or I, I pretty much played everything. Um, my best sport was baseball by by a mile. I always made all star teams, but um, you know, basketball was my first choice, my first love. I mean, I I was a junkie, watched it, played it, you know, did all I could, and I was I was okay. Like I said, up until about the seventh grade, when everybody started growing a little bit more than I did. Do you remember what pushed you towards basketball and why that was no, the sport you loved? No, I don't. I mean, I remember um, watching Dr. J as a little kid. Um, I remember Earl of Pearl Monroe and Pete Maravich were kind of like my favorites and Wilt Chamberlain. You know, that's how old I am. Um, but it's, yeah, I just I just remember, you know, and just being glued to the TV when we'd get like our, those weekly um, basketball games. But because we didn't have an NBA team in, in Pittsburgh, it was it was more baseball and football and other and, and other in college sports, um, so I didn't I just didn't get to see it as much. Do you remember when growing up you developed an, an entrepreneurial mindset? Oh yeah, I was like nine years old, ten years old. Um, I mean, I first you know started off you know buying and selling baseball cards in the park down the street down in Birdland um, in, in Scott Township in Pittsburgh. Um, I would. You know, we like a lot like a lot of kids back then, we would flip cards to win cards and collect cards and, you know, sit around and talk baseball cards all day um, or, you know, or play wiffle ball or wherever. And um, I would I would take the cards I had and I would repackage them (laughs) and wrap them in newspaper and sell them saying, okay, you know, one of these has got a Pittsburgh Pirate in it. You might get Willie Stargell or Roberto Clemente and um, and make some money to buy more cards that way. So that was probably the very beginning. And then I, I think I remember hearing something about a trash bag story. Yeah, so that, I was like 12, and I wanted a new pair of um, basketball shoes. And my dad was playing poker with his buddies, um, like they always did. And I'm, I'm sure they, you know, they had a few too many. And I would go in there just to steal the donuts. And while they were in there playing, um, it was like, Dad, I want a new pair of, of basketball shoes. And like you said about everything, it was like, you know, Mark, those those shoes that you have on right now, they look like they're working pretty well. When you have your own job, you can buy whatever you want. I'm like, Dad, I'm 12 years old. I mean, how am I going to get a job? And then one of his buddies pipes up, who was probably sloshed too, and said, <laughs> hey, I've got all these garbage boxes of garbage bags um, at my house. Why don't you sell them in the neighborhood? And I was like, okay, why not? And, you know, it, I, I would go to our neighbors, and it would be like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, my name is Mark. Do you use garbage bags? And obviously the answer was always going to be yes. And I was a cute, chubby little kid. And it was like, you know, $6 for a box of 100 And, you know, when you're done with them, I'll come bring you some more. And I was probably had the world's first and only garbage bag route in the history <laughs> of garbage bag routes. But I made a little bit of money, and I don't even remember if I actually got the shoes. 
do you think people can develop an entrepreneurial mindset or is it just something you kind of have or you don't? I, I think it's both. I think some people are just born that way. And I think that's just my mindset. Maybe there was something my parents did that triggered it. Um, I don't know, but I think on the flip side, when you get really good at something, that's when you start thinking about ways to start a, a business around it. So if there's some, if there's some skill you have that you feel really confident about, it may be a creative skill like painting and you, you want to sell your paintings or your crafts. Um, and you go on the Etsy, it may be, you know, um, you know, whatever, computer skills, it just, it, it could be any number of different things. But I think when people really feel confident that they're really good at what they do, that's also a prompt for them to start thinking about a business and, and often leads to success. How do you feel like you've grown most as an entrepreneur? Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, as you get older, you see more and, you know, you understand more and, you know, and plus, you know, as, as I made more money, the, the stress reduced. And so I, I went from, okay, I'm broke. How do I make enough to not be broke to how do I make enough to maybe, re, you know, relax? And how do I make enough to maybe retire? How do I make enough maybe to do whatever I damn well please and not ever have to worry about money again? And, you know, so you go through all these different stages. And, and so each step of the way, I, I think, you know, I, I just try to get smarter, but I think the one thing that stayed with me the entire time and that really has given me a huge advantage, I think, is that I love to learn. You know, there, there's no shortage of time that I'll spend learning new things, particularly as it applies to technology. Um, and even now, you know, with all the craziness going on, you know, just learning how to deal better with people over the last couple of years, you know, starting with the stuff that happened at the Mavs, that was just horrible and, and you know, just just horrible is, I guess, the only way to say it. I mean, I learned a lot more about myself, and I learned a lot more about how to deal with people and treat people. And, and you know, and, and hopefully that's resonating and, and showing some now going, you know, through all the things that we're, we're experiencing. I'm glad you brought up learning because you're obviously involved in a lot of different areas. Uh, and, and I was curious, if you don't mind expanding on that, how do you go about learning? What, what's the process when you really need to kind of dive in and, and familiarize I yourself? I find the time. I find the time. I make the time. I make a point to read and learn hours a day. You know, maybe it's a book. Maybe it's a video. Maybe it's a Coursera class. But I'll give you the perfect example, artificial intelligence. You know, I've, I've been a tech geek for a long time. But AI is relatively new. You know, it's only since the advent of a lot of GP, these advanced processors that it, become, that it became applicable to, to businesses. And, and so I realized that it was going to have a big impact. I read this book called The Master Algorithm, and I was like, oh, dang. I mean, if I don't really get a handle on this, um, and even though I don't know anything about it, if I don't get a handle on this, I'm not going to be able to compete. I'm, I'm not going to be relevant at all in business as we go forward. And so I, I dove in. You know, not just reading that book, but all the books I can get my hands on, re rebooting AI and others, taking, you know, going on to Amazon AWS and taking machine learning tutorials, introduction to AI videos, introduction to neural networks, you know, how to do a three-layer neural network in JavaScript, you know, um, just all these, you know, learning, taking a Python class, which is a programming language. Just, you know, I had no choice. If I wanted to be competitive and I wanted to be able to invest in technology businesses successfully, I had to be able to know what was real and what wasn't and how, to, how it impacted my companies and my investments. And, you know, it's, it's, and, and the Mavs in particular, I mean, now when you talk about analytics, 
you know, when we first started, we were probably the first NBA team to have a full-time analytics person back in 2001 when I hired Wayne Winston, who was my um, my stats prof at, at Indiana University. And just a quick story there, I, I took stats. It was graduate-level stats, stats. I snuck in as a freshman at IU, and I got an A in the class because the guy used um, sports analogies to teach stats, so it made it really easy. And then after years later, Right after I bought the Mavs in 2000, we were playing the Pacers in Indiana, and I had been watching Jeopardy, and my stats prof had been crushing it at Jeopardy. And then, boom, I hear my name being called from the stands in in the Pacers game, Pacers-Mavs game, and I look up, and I swear I wouldn't have recognized him had I not just seen him on Jeopardy, but there's my old stats prof, Wayne Winston, um, and so I hired him to to be our first um, the first analytics person for the Mavs, and you know, if you remember back like 2005, I think when we fell down 2-0 to the to the Rockets and at home, and then went on to win the series by like 40 points, we that's where we really learned to lean on him in analytics because we made changes to our lineups back then that that he drove. And so, I know that's kind of a, a little um, sidetrack, but fast forward to 2017, and you know, I'm like, okay analytics in the NBA and across all of business is changing to be AI driven, computer vision driven, um, you know, pose estimation and GANs and all these things that I have to understand that I can't just defer because otherwise I can't really have a conversation with our guys or I can't know if they're just BSing me <laughs> and don't know what they're talking about. And so, you know, when it comes to learning, I had to put in the time and Fortunately, I like it, and it was interesting to me and exciting even, as crazy as that sounds. And so, you know, that's how I, I do it. And, you know, it's just I, I like to read, and, and I like to learn. And so I think for anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur, that is absolutely a key trait. Um, otherwise, you can't ever really control your own destiny. You know, it's funny because when I asked someone, uh, a good friend of yours, in preparation for this conversation, they said, you got to talk to Mark about AI. And it's something that he's he's passionate about, and, and you clearly just demonstrated that. Uh, and you talked about how you, you familiarize yourself with, with AI. Uh, where do you think in the future AI is going to take us, and, and what will it allow us to do? Um, You know, that's a great question. It really... There's a lot of external things that'll influence how far AI goes. Um, you know, the speed of processors, the the ability, the cost of that processing power in the cloud. Um, but you know, AI is the ability to take data and extract from it information you otherwise would not see, or have it tell you things you otherwise may not would not have considered. Um, but it also starts to extend into, you know, computer vision or neural networks, you know, where computer vision, you know, we're working on things with the Mavs where you can just throw in a video um, of a game and it tells you exactly what's going on. We're working at things with ma- the Mavs with pose estimation in computer vision where it can, you know, hopefully at some point, probably three years from now, five years from now, who knows, you know, look at, look at all the plays that any given team runs and come up with the best defense, literally showing the players and positioning them. You know, um, it's, uh, what else? So talked about computer vision, it's robotics, you know, being able to, once we get manual dexterity in robots, just doing almost anything 
um, that is repeat repetitive that a person can do and, and just changing the game there in terms of how we compete in manufacturing with overseas manufacturers. So there, AI is going to touch everything. And if you're in business, small, medium, or large, and you don't have a grasp of it, you're going to be at a disadvantage. Uh, you said something once, work like there's someone working 24 hours to take it all away from you. And I think the work ethic that you have uh, is obviously a, a huge part of uh, who you are and what you've been able to accomplish. Who were some of your early influences that helped you develop an understanding of, of the importance of work ethic? Um, I think my dad, I mean, my dad did upholstery on cars and worked almost every single day, six days a week. He'd be gone at 7.30 in the morning and, you know, or earlier and come back at six and <laughs> exhausted. And, you know, he, he would bring me down to where he worked, Regency Products, and make me sweep the floor. And I was like, Dad, I don't want to sweep the floor. And he's like, exactly. I want you to know exactly what it takes to have to do physical work so that you don't ever want to do it. And, you know, I saw, saw how hard he worked. Um, and then after that, it's just the competitive side of me. You know, getting into business or e- even the jobs I, I had, you know, wanting to, to be good, wanting to kick everybody's ass and, and, and survive and, and excel. And, you know, you can only do that by outworking people. And, you know, you come to, re- you know, there was a point early on in my career where I was always the youngest and people didn't take me seriously. So I had to walk in and, and show them that I knew what I was talking about. And, and, and you know, that meant working harder and longer. I went seven years without taking a vacation in my first company, Microsolutions. Um, you know, and then even now, you know, now I'm the older guy and it's like, okay, if I want to be able to take some, some teenager or 20 something and show them that I know what I'm doing, I can't walk in and just, you know, talk trash and, and not be able to back it up. And so, you know, that work ethic comes from wanting to compete. I, I'm just curious, Mark, who's someone you've come across who really impresses you? You know, I, I always used to look up to Ted Turner because he worked hard, was a great salesperson, always was looking one step ahead and around corners and had fun doing it. You know, um, you know, he started cable, basically started the cable industry, started the news industry when everybody thought he was crazy and there was no need. Um, he, you know, he won, you know, sailing races. He, um, you know, he bought the Braves and made himself manager, you know, and he was just always had a bottle of champagne in his one hand and a cigar in the other. And, you know, married Jane Fonda, who I, you know, when I was a little kid, had a crush on. And, and so just, you know, that was somebody I always looked up to. I, I'm curious, you know, you've owned the Mavs now for multiple decades. That's crazy. <laughs> side story i remember when i learned that there was this guy named mark cuban who bought my beloved mavs i was like eight years old i was in a bubble bath i think uh, oh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was like I, I think this could be good i don't know it can't be any worse than it's been and it's, no, it's turned funny. out to be amazing but eight year old in a bubble bath that's good well when you look back what's what's been the toughest part of, of owning a team 2006 just the competitiveness and, and everything that went went into that? Just losing, yeah, and how we lost. That was just brutal. I couldn't leave the house for at least a month, and I still get nauseous thinking about it. You know, someone asked me if I wanted to do a podcast reviewing the 2006 finals, and I was like, hell no. I don't ever want to see that again. And, um, yeah, it's still painful. Like, if I see Dwayne Wade's name, it's still painful, right? I still get mad. 
Um, and so, yeah, that was the worst. How did you, I mean, obviously you were able to, to bounce back, even if it's still a, you don't a bad have memory. choice, do you? <laughs> yeah. So is, is, was that kind of the mindset? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's always another season and you always have, you know, big hopes and, you know, we, we started off the next season, like, Oh, and four, then went 67 and 11, the rest of the way, and then get knocked out by Nelly, you know? And so that, that was bad, but they actually had beaten us the, multiple times in the regular season so it wasn't as shocking as a lot of people made it seem and obviously Nelly knew our personnel well so but yeah that wasn't as painful as as, um losing the finals and then you know 2008 you know 2009 when you know we moved on from Avery to Rick you know got Jason Kidd that that wasn't easy early on I mean there were there were a lot of warts and bumps and bruises and then 2011 just happened and it was magical and and that made everything better. That, you know, it, we had the Band-Aid ripped off the boo-boo and the boo-boo healed. <laughs> I, I got a couple basketball questions, and I want to go back to just, just leadership and, and the other stuff that, that makes you who you are. But I, years ago, I remember Josh Childress left the NBA to go play in Greece. Uh-huh. And, and I love soccer, and I remember thinking, I wonder if the NBA basketball would ever get to a point where much like soccer, they'd have turn in, interleague tournaments uh, at some point, and, and you'd be able to see, you know, the the you know Barcelona or uh, you know a, a, a team in Israel or Greece. Do you think that would ever happen, where there would be some sort of out of the the regular season interleague competitions? But who would we play? That's the that's the question. Well, I guess uh, Cause, uh, yeah, because you know, it's so country driven over yeah. there, right? You know, so you've got Israeli leagues, you've got German leagues, you've got Italian leagues, and then they come together and play against each other, and you know, um, and that makes it a lot easier. And the the distance obviously isn't all that much. Now, over the summer, I'd love to see it. I mean, I just think we've been dumber than a box of rocks by letting our our best players go and play in the Olympics. I mean, the Olympics are not a nonprofit. If they were a nonprofit, I could understand. Play for your country, you know. You know, represent your country, and this is you know not about money. It's about you know doing the right thing and doing what you believe in. Great, but the Olympics are all about money. It's a multi-billion-dollar operation that makes the the Olympic organizations and the, their employees rich, you know, and and scandal-driven rich. And so um, I, I always just thought that we should do do what soccer does, which is you know 21 and under plays in the Olympics and everybody else plays in the World Cup that makes all the players and all the teams money. And we should be doing the exact same thing. And then you can start having a lot of fun with it. You could have a World Cup where Germany um, plays, you know, Japan or whoever, and, you know, the United States plays, and you do it the exact same way as the Soccer World Cup. But the most important thing is not only is it entertaining, um, not only is it, you know, intense and, and gives you a different um, – type of basketball, I guess, in some respects, but it also benefits financially the players and their families, and that just makes so much more sense to me, but, you know, I've been voted down for 20 years on that now. So, uh, I was going to ask if you had any reason to believe that maybe this could happen, but it, it doesn't seem like people it, you are... You know what? It, it's, I think everything now is starting to be on the table. You know, we have to get back this year, which hopefully we will, um, and then go from there, and you know, if we play later into the summer, that kind of changes it. But that's the other thing. You know, if we play later into the summer, what do you do with the Olympics? 
you know, I'd vote against taking a break during the season for the Olympics like the NHL did. That didn't work for them. And so now maybe it makes more sense since the Olympics, you know, would happen in season for us. Um, then we do our own World Cup. All right. I, I want to get back to the, the the entrepreneurial side, and maybe some of it includes the Mavericks. Maybe it doesn't. But you've had a ton of uh, experiences in a lot of different fields, and I imagine that uh, conflict is just a part of work. You know, you don't always agree with people. Sometimes it's it's more serious than others. How do you go about handling that conflict? I mean, I did do it very well with the Mavs a few years ago. Um, you know, you just you learn. You know, you you do the best you can. You try to be as fair and honest. And and you know, the reality is, I'm you know, the way I did things when I ran day to day operations, um, you know, for Micro Solutions or Broadcast dot com or you know, or shared those operations with my partners um, was one thing. You know, now investing in hundreds of companies, more than 200 companies, and, and trying to support them and look for other investments and help other entrepreneurs, it, it's a little bit different. So I, I'm not facing the conflict as, as often as I used to. I mean, you know, back in my first company, my partner Martin Whittle and I used to have knockdown, drag-out screaming matches, you know, about the way he wanted to do things and the way I wanted to do things. And fortunately, I won out. <laughs> it paid off for both of us. Um, and you know, and and it's just, it really just depends on the company and and my role in it. But when it was my baby, it was my way because I was always on a mission. And and it was like we're speeding up, and this is the way it goes. And you know, there I, I would listen to people, but I I pretty much had a vision that I, I wanted to to fulfill. And you know, listening was more on the 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 elements the you know the individual elements as opposed to the macro things the micro things as opposed to the, the macro things and so you know it's just it just really depends on on the company and whether you're running it but you know we all you know what I've tried to do is is learn and evolve and get better I, in in your various roles you you have to handle a, a team and I don't necessarily mean the the team of players that that we watch uh, on the court 82 plus times a year but just the the team at large with the Mavs and other companies what what are your core values of leadership and and how do you go about handling and and managing a team I I just try to to set an example that you know there's not if I ask you to do something I'm willing to do the same job and if I set a vision um, I want to help you see the value to yourself in that vision you know, when, when it was microsolutions and, and broadcast.com, everybody owned stock in the company. And so we all were on the same page. Now, you know, they had to trust me that I was doing the right thing. And, you know, fortunately, in both companies, we hardly had any turnover whatsoever. You know, in one case with microsolutions, we were, you know, one of the leaders in local area networks and custom applications and, you know, one of the biggest in the country at doing what we did. And with Broadcast.com, we started the streaming industry. Um, and with HDNet, we were the first all-high-definition television network. And so people who came to work for me, you know, really understood the vision and where we were going and, and bought in. And, you know, when we sold all those companies, everybody made money. And so it was worthwhile for them. Uh, one of, uh, I guess, our mutual friends is Al Whitley, yeah, and I've, I've gotten to know Al Whitley yep. through the legends the last couple of years, and, and I just think his story of how he started from the bottom <laughs> and, and has, has risen yep. is is really cool, and I imagine it's one you'd appreciate. When you think of your time with Al, which you know is 
is, uh, you know, a couple decades long. What, what are the things that stand out to you about what he's been able to accomplish? Well, just having him be Nash's buddy and starting off that way, right? You know, and just, you know, can you get him a job? It's one of my buddies from home. And sure, Big Al Pumpy, come on, get him a job. And, <laughs> you know, as just doing whatever and just his personality and his willingness just to, to, to work hard and, and be part of a team and always have a positive attitude just kept him moving up the ladder. And, you know, there's, there's two types of people really um, in when, when it, two types of employees, if you will. And there's people who create stress and people who reduce stress. Al Whitley is just one of those guys always who has reduced my stress. And if you're reducing my stress, I'm going to keep on moving you up the ladder because I want you to do more and more because that means less stress for me. And that's why Big Al Pumpy has always, you know, gotten more and more um, responsibility. And, and now, as you know, he's running the Legends. I, I got to ask you this. Uh, I guess when you moved to Dallas, you were, you were in a rugby league. And, and, I played rugby, yeah. Okay, so what, how, did, how did you get introduced to rugby, and what were those experiences so like? So I started playing. Um, when I went to Indiana, I was like, okay, I need to do something physical here. I'd actually grown from high school a few inches and lost some weight. And, and so now, you know, I wouldn't say I was athletic, but I was, a lot, I was able to comp- compete a lot better, let's put it that way. And so I played basketball all day, every day, but I wanted to do something that was more contact-driven. And I didn't really know anything about rugby, but I met some guy who had grown up in England, Dyke Drummond, who lived in my dorm. And he's like, come on, come play rugby with me. And I'm like, sure, why not, you know? And so I went there and just started, and, and you know, IU had a club team, and and played with them, and the club grew and grew and grew, and we would travel and play. And then when I graduated from Indiana, I um, went to Pittsburgh first and played for the Pittsburgh team, and we were really good. And, you know, that's when I was really at my best playing rugby, and, and uh, you know, I, it, it was fun. And, you know, I like to be physical and, <laughs> and, and just get the, you know, I didn't mind giving a beating as, or taking a beating <laughs> as long as I could give a beating. And, you know, and so I, I grew to really love the sport to this day. Um, and then after I left Pittsburgh, I came down to Dallas and played for the Harlequins. And so that's when we were winning national championships and played there. Um, and then as my business grew, it was a lot harder. And so I, I officially retired at the age of 33. And plus my hips were falling apart. So that. <laughs> That led to it, but um, I still go back and I, I've played old boys games. You know, we had rugby reunions from my IU teams, and yeah. So you know, rugby is certainly my second favorite, second favorite sport after basketball. So my family's South African, and, and my dad oh, grew up go. playing, and he was a scrum half. And, and I yeah. watched with him. Well, what position did you play? So I they've tried to make me a second row, which I lasted about two games. <laughs> there was no way I'm sticking my face in there. And so then I played wing forward, and then. Um, when I came down here, I played eighth man. I liked eighth man the best because I could pick up the ball and run with it. You know, when you're going forward, it, it's fun because <laughs> I could get in there and chase the scrum half and, you know, um, yeah, but I, I, was, I was mostly a wing forward. All right, I got one more serious question and then one more uh, light question. We've, uh, you know, we're, we're in a time right now where a lot of people want to promote change and yep. it, it's all directed in a good way, but it's, you know, it's easier said than done. You've, yep. You've been a part of these types of movements before. What is important? What, what is key in, in, in trying to promote change and, and really make a difference? I mean, the first step to change is realizing you need to change. And that was hard for me, you know, um, particularly with what's going on with the African-American community. I always thought, you know what, I treat everybody the same. I am colorblind. 
And I learned when the Mavs went through the mess that we had that that's not the right way to do it, that, you know, people have different perspectives, and I have to understand and, and recognize those differences because if you don't recognize those differences, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to treat people equally. You know, treating people equally does not mean treating them the same. And, and I had to drill that into myself over and over because that was a big change for me. You know, and so the first step is, is all of us, you know, recognizing that, you know, it, it's not working for the African-American and minority community. You know, when talking to, to players, talking to my, you know, black friends I have, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day and he's like, you know, when I go out um, and he's African-American, I take my kids or, you know, I take a friend with me because if I'm with somebody, no one feels threatened. But if I'm, you know, black by my, being black and by myself, you know, can feel the difference. People, you know, evaluate him as a potential threat. And that's never happened to me. That's never happened to you. You know, I have a 10-year-old son, and I don't, I don't have to have a conversation with him about if he gets pulled over by the police, you know, when, when he's old enough to drive. Or, you know, like some of my black friends have to have with their sons. You know, here's what you do if you get pulled over by the police, because I always was raised you know, that the police were just a positive. There was no threat from the police. That's not what happens in the African-American community, and we've seen, you know, the implications of that. And so the first step is realizing that even if we think we're doing it right, let's reevaluate how we do it to see if we can do it better. I remember a couple years ago, Delino DeShields, who used to play for the Rangers and is black, told me once that whenever he walks into a room, the first thing he does is to see if there are any black people and, and where they are. And I just and we, we went into to greater depth as to why and, and, and how that all evolved. But like that's that's never something I've ever felt no. the need to do. Now, when you walk into a group of white friends, when, if you're with a group of your white friends and a white guy walks up, you immediately say, hey, come on, what's going on, you know? And, and you wonder, you don't really wonder, but you don't say, hey, there's a white guy. If you're with a bunch of your white friends and a black guy walks up, you're like, okay, who knows him? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, is he supposed to be here? And I've done it, we've all done it, and that's where we've just got to, you know, reevaluate and say, okay, you know, we're, doing it, we're not doing it as well as we can. And, you know, that's the first step, recognizing that even if you think you're doing it right, maybe it's worth just reevaluating to see if you can do it better. All right, last question, Mark, and, and this is not a, 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 a racial question, but I want to ask about the white uniforms. It, for, <laughs> for years, we would see white uniforms at home, and I, I don't know if it, I think I, I noticed it this year that the Mavs and, and really the rest of the league were going more to the, the non-white uniforms at yeah. home. What, what led to that? They don't sell as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's it. That makes sense. And you know what? And I know there's a lot of uniform crazies out there on design. I have, like, nothing to do with it. I, like, now that you just mention it, that we haven't worn white, I didn't even, I'd never even thought about it. <laughs> Not one time did it ever cross my mind. So, you know, way to take the lead on the important subjects, Jared. There, there you go. <laughs>